This morning I'd like us to turn back to the book of Acts together. Obviously we haven't studied it in the past few weeks, but as we turn back to Acts chapter 4, I think we'll see some encouraging truths about the name of Jesus that are helpful for us to consider both in terms of salvation and in terms of living the Christian life. One of the key ideas that we see here in Acts chapter 4 is this concept of the name. And when we think the word name, we might think of it in different ways. Perhaps this person made a name for himself doing a particular business or a particular sport. Perhaps you're at the store and you say, should I buy this name brand of something? But the sense of name that I think comes closer to what we see in this passage is that when you are filling out some sort of form or an application for something, you have to put your name. Why do you put your name? Because your name represents who you are. It's closely tied to who you are. And so in this passage, when we see the name of Jesus, we are seeing that it's not just a title, but we are seeing the uh, power and the person. We're seeing Jesus himself connected with his name. We see from this passage, I think, that we ought to trust in Jesus' name, to trust in Jesus himself for three things. The first is for salvation. The second is for confidence in the face of opposition. And the third is for boldness in prayer. So let's start in Acts chapter 4. And we'll start in verse 5. We looked at the first four verses uh, the last time we were studying through Acts. But we'll start in verse 5. And I want us to see that we need to trust in Jesus' name for salvation. We, I think we'll see from the first few verses here that Jesus' name has the power to save physically. And we see this in contrast to what I'll call the unbelief of unbelievers. And I say, why that? Because it emphasizes their state. They are those who are unbelievers. They are those who are constantly expressing unbelief. Who are they? They are the rulers and the elders and the scribes. You have Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all who are of high priestly descent. These were the people who were supposed to be teaching God's people. This was their primary responsibility that they would lead and teach the people of Israel to follow after God and to know God. And yet, even as Jesus rebuked Nicodemus, are you even a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things, instead of being the ones who are specifically leading God's people closer to God, they were seeking to lead God's people away from God by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They do this specifically by questioning God's power. We see this in verse 7. When they had placed them, that would be Peter and John, in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Have you healed this lame man? And you think about this question, and you say, well, maybe they just really wanted to know. But no, what are the legitimate possibilities for whose power it was that the lame man was healed by? God or Satan? The reason that they are asking this question is because they don't believe that it's God because to admit that it is God is to admit that they were wrong and they should not have crucified Jesus the Messiah. It's fascinating to note the parallels here between what we see in verse 7 and what Jesus experienced in Luke chapter 20. Why don't you turn back there with me if you would. Luke chapter 20. I'll start in verse 1. It says, On one of the days, while he was teaching the people, 
in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where John's baptism came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Note the parallels between that circumstance and this circumstance. Same group of people gathered to question. In, the, in this case, they were questioning Jesus. In the one that we're looking at in Acts 4, they're questioning those who are proclaiming Jesus. There's a question of authority. By what right? By whose power are you doing these things? And there is the situation that they find themselves in, which is if they admit that something that is clearly from God is from God, it undoes all the things that they've been trying to do to oppose the apostles. They're questioning God's power. They are seeking, I think, to get the apostles to attribute this miracle to a misleading sign, a a work of Satan. Because isn't that what they accuse Jesus of? Were we not right in saying you have a demon? Were we not right in saying that you are crazy? These were the accusations that that they leveled against Jesus. These are the same accusations that they are seeking to bring up against the apostles. And so as we see this, we see that God has the power to save physically in the face of of the unbelief of unbelievers, and even when good is seen as evil. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well. Peter highlights for them the foolishness of their question. He's saying, we are on trial for doing a good thing. Why are you supposed to be on trial? for breaking the law. Why were they on trial? Because they did something that was right and the leaders of Israel did not want to acknowledge that it was from God, that it was a good thing, that it showed God's power. So he highlights that very clearly for them. And then he turns to their question. But if you are asking how this man has been made well, I will give you an answer. He gives Jesus the credit for it. Let it be known to all of you And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you here in good health. Whose power was it that made the lame man walk? Clearly, it was that of Jesus. And again, as we've seen several times here already in the book of Acts, Peter highlights their guilt before God. You killed him. God sent him to you. He is the Messiah. You rejected Him. You killed Him. But your most strenuous efforts could not overcome God's purpose because God raised Him from the dead. Or as it said back in chapter 2, He could not be held by death. God raised Him from the dead. So Peter's rebuking them even as he answers them and saying, you are guilty before God because you've rejected the Messiah, but that very Messiah is the one by whose power this lame man was made well. Certainly this would have been something that would have stirred them up, something that would have 
created a sense of guilt for them because clearly they were in the wrong. But not only did Jesus' name have power to say physically, clearly there in verse 10, by the name of Jesus, by the power of Jesus Christ, the one that you sought to deny, His power is the one that made this lame man well. That same name is the way of salvation. Jesus' name has power to save eternally. We see in verse 11 that repentance is essential in turning to Jesus. Why do I say that? Because again, Peter highlights their guilt. Verse 11, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. What is the only way for these that Peter is addressing to be right with God? It's to acknowledge that we are wrong, that we crucified the Messiah, that He was the one whom God sent to us, and we rejected Him, and that was sin, and we would ha- they would have to turn away from that. Why? Because in verse 2, the only hope of salvation would be to turn the Jesus who rejected because there is salvation in no one else. Turn back with me, if you would, to John, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 20. Turn back to Luke chapter 20. Because as Jesus continues that conversation with the Pharisees, with the leaders of Israel, I want to point out some more parallels between what happened there and what's happening as well here in Acts chapter 4. In Luke 20, starting in verse 9, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? When they heard, He will come and destroy those vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is that which is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. We see this same sort of attitude in Matthew 21. And Matthew adds these details for us. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So uh, there's further parallels in this passage between Jesus' ministry and this conversation that's that's happening now again with largely the same group of people. They again are being confronted with their guilt. They're being confronted with Jesus as the Messiah. They're being reminded of the fact that they have turned aside from him. And that He is the only way. The ones who were in the parable of the vineyard that were sent and were cast out, the slaves before the sun, those were the prophets. The people of Israel consistently rejected the prophets. The sun comes, they reject Him as well. They need to turn away from that sin because salvation is only found in Jesus. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. Or as Peter says in another place, where will we go, Master? You have 
the words of life. And this is so essential because there are people today that will say that there's a variety of ways to God. If you believe hard enough and you're a good person, you'll make it to God. If you follow whatever religion you have faithfully, you'll make it to God. There is only salvation in Jesus Christ. And when it says in the second phrase there, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, essentially what's going on there is, are you going to associate yourself with and submit to the authority of Jesus because that's the only way of salvation. You can't attach yourself to any other name. You can't attach yourself to the name of Buddha, the name of Muhammad, the name of any other prophet or religious figure throughout history. Jesus is the only one by whom you can be saved. And the question for the Pharisees, for the leaders of Israel, for these high priestly figures was... Are you going to recognize that and turn away from your sin and turn to Christ the only way of salvation? Or are you going to continue to oppose God's work and try to discredit the apostles and try to say that their work was either not real or a false miracle or some other sort of a thing? What are you going to do? And that's the question that each of us has to ask. What am I going to do with the name of Jesus? Am I going to submit to Him and trust in Him and believe in Him and follow Him? Or am I going to go my own way? And as we've seen in a number of other passages from Thessalonians and other things that we've studied in the last few months, this is not just an either-or. I could go this way, I could go that way, it's no big deal. God commands all men everywhere to repent, and if we don't repent, we stand condemned. Because we have disobeyed God. And there is no hope apart from turning from that sin and trusting in Jesus. And so this is what the apostles confronted the high priests, the rulers, the elders, and the scribes with. So the name of Jesus is the only way of salvation. But the name of Jesus is also what gives the apostles confidence in the face of this opposition. Look at verse 13. We will see how confidence in Jesus silenced their opponents. Verse 13, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. How does confidence in Jesus silence opponents? because God uses the weak to shame the wise. What do we see here in these verses? Peter and John are confident. What else do we see? They understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. Now, sometimes we look at this in our day sort of um, with a sort of proud attitude and be like, well, because they were fishermen, they didn't know anything. That's not the point. The point is, here's the leaders of Israel who had studied the law and been trained in it and all of these sorts of things. Here were Peter and John who had not been trained in all of the intricate details of the laws and what this rabbi said and that rabbi said and all those sorts of things, and yet they're speaking confidently God's words. What was the only right conclusion? The last phrase of verse 13. They had been with Jesus. Think about the ministry of Jesus himself. What was different about the ministry of Jesus than the ministry of the scribes and Pharisees? The scribes and Pharisees would have been more tentative. Here's what this rabbi said. Here's what that rabbi said. Argumentative, 
uh, uh, trying to reason some of these things out. Jesus took the Word of God because He is the Word of God, spoke it boldly and confidently as one having authority. Peter and John, along those same lines, based on that authority of Christ Himself, are speaking God's Word boldly and clearly and confidently. But not only that, not only can God use the weak to shame the wise in verse 13, but God's power could not be denied. Look at verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Now, if he wasn't there, they could have tried to put some kind of a spin on it. This is a rumor, something along those sorts of lines. But he's standing right there, and everybody knows that's the guy who begged at the temple, who's standing right there, who had been lame, and now is not lame. How? This confidence in Jesus also confused their opponents, starting in verse 15. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Why were their opponents confused? Because God's power was clear. The layman was standing there, and they had to admit it, verse 16, the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We can't contain this news. We can't cover it up. We can't hide it. Everybody knows about it. God had clearly healed, and the people knew about it, and despite their hatred of Jesus and the work of the apostles, the Pharisees had to acknowledge that this was, in fact, what had taken place. And so what was their response? Their response was, well, let's tell them not to say anything about it. And so that's what they do. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But we see also that confidence in Jesus enabled a proper response by the apostles to their opponents. Why? Verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. They acknowledged who was the highest authority. The highest authority was not the high priest. The highest authority was not Herod or Pilate or any of these other leaders. The highest authority was God. And they had a sense that they needed to obey God rather than this command to stop speaking and teaching about Jesus. Now, something that's important for us to remember at this point, sometimes our attitude is, if there's someone in a, in a position of authority with whom we do not agree, who behaves in an unchristian way or an ungodly way, we think, well, I don't have to obey that person at all because they're behaving in an ungodly way. But if you notice the, what's going on here, the only point of disobedience to their authority was this, when the authority commanded them to violate something God had specifically told them to do. So just a common example. I don't know of anyone who loves taxes. But, did God ever say, don't pay taxes? No, in fact, he said the opposite. So we can't say, well, I'm not going to pay taxes because I don't want to, because that's what the authority requires of us. Now, if the authority says, you can't preach the gospel anymore, 
just like they told Peter and John, what do we have to say? We have to speak, verse 20, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard, or in our case, we cannot stop speaking about what the apostles have proclaimed to us that's recorded in God's Word. We can't stop proclaiming the Gospel. So again, the point of disobedience is when an authority figure says, do something God said not to, or in this case specifically, stop doing something God said that you should do. Not a general uh, license to disobey. And this, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. This goes back to what we saw in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And then you remember when the apostles were gathered together and they were selecting another apostle to fill the place of Judas, what did they say? They said it is necessary, verse 22 of Acts 1, that one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. That was one of their primary functions was to say we were there, we saw Jesus' death, we saw his resurrection, we saw his life and ministry, we are testifying to all the people about the things that we have seen and heard. And so when the high priest says stop doing that they say God has said we must do this God has said this is what's going to be accomplished what choice do we have confidence from Jesus I think the last thing from this section is that it can protect from opponents I say can because this is not absolute in chapter 5 we're going to see that the apostles are beaten throughout the rest of the book of Acts we'll see various of the apostles be martyred for following Christ but at this specific point, God spared them. We see this in verse 21. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Consider again the parallels between Jesus' ministry. What did Pilate say about Christ? I find no reason to punish him. What, did, uh, what happened early on in Jesus' ministry? They didn't like Christ, they hated Him in fact, but they were not able to seize Him and imprison Him or crucify Him early on in His ministry because they were afraid of the people. Again, same sort of thing here. I think Luke is highlighting these parallels because again, he's pointing out the rightness of what the apostles are doing and the guilt of the religious leaders in opposing them and the fact that Christianity is not something that stands in opposition to the truth, in opposition to what's right, but in fact, he's arguing that it is in fact what's right and that those who are opposing it were the ones in the wrong. Now we see verse uh, 22. For this man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And we look at this and we see how God was working through the sinfulness of human beings to preserve the apostles. Why do I say that? What's the attitude of the scribes and the elders? Their attitude is, essentially, we'll have a PR disaster and we will be overthrown if we oppose what the apostles are doing. Why? Here's a man who was lame. Clearly, that's a bad thing. It's something that is an effect of the curse of sin, something that nobody chooses willingly, and now he is standing and walking and the people are praising God. 
What's the only thing that they can acknowledge? Now is not the time to get rid of the apostles. The people will rise up against us. And so God, at this moment, protects the early church by both the receptiveness of the people and by the clear evidence that this miracle was from God, that it was a good thing, that it was something for which God should be praised. So the name of Jesus is the only source of salvation. The name of Jesus enables confidence in the face of opposition. And finally, the name of Jesus is the source of our boldness in prayer. Look at verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Note that their almost immediate response was to go to fellow believers and say, here's what's going on, here's what God, God has done. I think that sets an example for us that we ought to be testifying of God's work and of the trials of our lives to fellow believers. And what's their response to that in verse 24? When they had heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. Again, this is a convicting statement because it's so easy to turn to a variety of other things when we face one of these crisis sorts of situations. And it's not wrong when we're faced with some sort of significant decision or some sort of uh, circumstance that overwhelms us to seek counsel from other people, to seek wisdom in uh, what are the pros and cons of a particular choice. We should certainly do those things. But I would argue from this passage that before we even we do all those sorts of things, we ought to turn to God in prayer. And what sort of prayer was it? It was a prayer that expressed boldness because of who God is. Verse 24, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. What do they start out by saying? God's the creator. So all of these things that are part of creation are under God who is the creator. And so if we face a problem from one of God's fellow creatures, who's the only one to whom we can turn? It's God who is the creator. Not only is God the Creator, but God is also the Ruler, who by the Holy Spirit, verse 25, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Peter's taking this passage uh, that speaks of opposition to the rightful Davidic ruler in um, Psalm 2, and he's saying... This opposition to Christ will not stand. What does it say later in Psalm 2? The one who sits in heaven laughs at them. Why? Because he's God, he's the creator. Because he's the creator, he's also the ruler over all things. Their opposition is as foolish as the opposition of an insect to us. And even far greater is the discrepancy between the nations and God. They say in verse... Uh, 27, truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They were gathered against Christ, the anointed one, the ultimate Davidic ruler. They opposed him. But they go before God, acknowledging this, because God is the ruler. They have a sense of God's purpose. These nations rise up, verse 27, they're gathered against Christ. And yet, verse 28 acknowledges this did not take God by surprise. In fact, this was specifically part of God's plan. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. 
we consider again Acts 2, 22 and 23. By the hands of wicked men, Christ was nailed to the cross. Their guilt did not go away simply because their act accomplished God's plan and in turn brought salvation to us. They were still guilty before God, and yet this did not take God by surprise. In fact, it was the accomplishment, the fulfillment of His plan that He had been working out all throughout human history up to that point. What is God's relationship to sin? God does not sin. He is not the author of sin. He does right in every circumstance. He condemns sin. And yet, sin and the sinful choices of human beings, and in fact the sinful choices of Satan and all of his demons, none of these things are beyond the control of God. And so we look around us at a world in which we question, does God know what is going on? Is God in control of all these things? Sometimes we ask that question, and we have to acknowledge that if God gathered together the nations to accomplish His purpose, not forcing them to make a choice, it was a choice that they willingly and freely made, but using that choice to accomplish the death of Christ and then raising Christ from the dead and all of these things together, accomplishing our salvation, is there any place for us to doubt God's sovereignty? No. And that's why we can turn to Him in prayer. Because we can have confidence in the name that is above every name because He is the one who is the creator. He is the one who is the ruler. And so what was their response? Verse 29 and 30. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They believed and they asked God to continue working through them and they recognized that this would fulfill God's purpose for them. Going back to Acts 1.8 and all of these other passages, God had said, I will build my church. God had said, I will make you my witnesses, specifically the apostles, but in a lesser sense, all believers, all of those who are following Christ. And so what was their response? Not, Lord, take us away from this responsibility. Not, we're not going to do it, but rather, God, give us the strength to do this with confidence because it's your power, not ours, because you're the source of our strength. I think that this prayer models for us the sort of prayers we ought to pray to God as well when we face opposition from people who hate Christians, when we face difficulties or even joys and other circumstances in life, we ought to turn to God and say, God, help me to have the right response to this by your grace, for your glory, because of Jesus. And finally, we see here a boldness because God answers prayer. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Why can we have boldness? Because God answered their prayer in verse 31. And when it says the place was shaken, in our minds that parallels to this idea of an earthquake. We say, well, that seems like a strange earthquake that doesn't damage anything. I would argue that in Acts 16 you have the same sort of thing. I was just looking at that uh, in a class with the kids in the class that I teach at the Christian school, and we were talking about the fact that here's this earthquake that knocks the chains off the prisoners' hands and opens all the doors but doesn't knock the building down. Does God have the power to control an earthquake to that degree? Yes. When this 
place is shaken. It's a sign that God hears their prayer. It's a, it's a manifestation of God's power. Furthermore, it's not just an external sign, but it's God specifically answers their prayer. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak the Word of God with boldness. So God heard their prayer. God answered their prayer. And so how can we have confidence? They had confidence coming into it. What sustains and continues and strengthens that confidence? It's our connection with Jesus through His name. So here's the question that I think we ought to ask ourselves as we look at this passage. Do we believe that Jesus' name is above all other names? That it is the name by which we are saved? It is the name by which we have strength to face opposition properly? That it is the name that enables us to come before God with confidence, with boldness? Do we trust in Jesus through His name? If we do, then I think that a proper response would be for us to point others to that salvation, to ask ourselves, am I responding like the apostles did in the face of opposition? And to say, am I coming before God with confidence and prayer? If we do not yet trust in Christ, if we do not yet trust in Jesus' name, what's the only right response? To recognize that there is salvation in no one else. To recognize that unless we turn away from rejecting Christ and instead turn toward Christ, that we stand condemned just like the Pharisees, the scribes, the rulers of Israel. Jesus' name is the name that is above all other names. Let's pray. Lord, as we've looked at your word together, we have been, at least I have been, amazed to see the power of your name, how many times it's mentioned in this passage that in the strength of Jesus' name, the lame man walked, we find salvation we find the ability to face opposition to the gospel without backing down. We find the ability to come boldly before you through the work that Christ has done. Lord, help us to see the value of Jesus' name of his person. Help us to respond properly to him this morning, whether that be to bow the knee for the first time and to turn and trust in him, or whether it be to build on an existing trust and faith in Christ and for that to be strengthened, and for it to affect the way that we live throughout the week. We pray that you would accomplish these things in us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.